and welcome to Gods and Movie Makers, otherwise known as the Desert of the Real, the show about how religion and the Bible shape the stories we tell on screen. I'm Katie Turner. And I'm Joe Scales. On this season, The Chosen One. Why were they chosen? Do they want to be chosen? And why are we so attracted to these sorts of stories? We're joined today by Dr. King Ho Lung. Dr. Lung is Senior Research Fellow at St. Mary's College, the University of St. Andrews. He was previously lecturer in philosophy and theology at the University of Chester. His work has been published in journals including philosophy, modern theology, studies in Christian ethics, and theory, culture, and society. He is currently completing a book on the understanding of philosophy as a spiritual practice and its relation to contemporary conceptions of secularity. That sounds fascinating. Welcome, King Ho. Thank you for having me. So bearing in mind, we're going to be talking about the Matrix. You're dropped into a scenario where you have the ability to upload any knowledge directly into your brain. So what's the first skill set or learning thing that you're going to upload into your brain if you're in that situation? Probably all sorts of languages, I guess. So great. Some kind of advanced Google Translate. Yeah. So that would be the one to, yeah, (laughs) that would go for. That's a really good pick. That is a great answer. Yeah. That's always my go-to X-Men power is understanding of all the languages because it'd be so great to like walk around, just speak any language, make ancient text translation really easy. So you'd have like the Star Trek Universal Translator, but it would just be you. But I also speak them as well. That would be the right. great answer like that. <laughs> right. So to get into our Matrix chat, we're going to do a film synopsis. so sure was real what if you were unable to wake from that dream how would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world what is the matrix the matrix is a 1999 sci-fi action film directed by lana and lily wachowski Keanu Reeves stars as Neo, otherwise known as Thomas Anderson, a computer hacker searching for meaning in his seemingly empty life. Lawrence Fishburne plays Morpheus, the leader of a rebel group. Morpheus reveals to Neo that he's been living in The Matrix, a computer simulation of reality. It isn't even the year 1999 as Neo had thought, it's actually hundreds of years later into a post-apocalyptic future and humans have become unconsciously enslaved to AI machines. Morpheus believes that Neo is the one, a long-expected messiah figure who will free humanity from its plight. Other members of the rebel group who have been awakened by Morpheus to their true existence are Trinity, Neo's love interest, played by Carrie Ann Moss, and Cypher, played by Joe Pantoliano, an angry member who eventually betrays the rest. The film itself captures the zeitgeist of the late 1990s and was an immediate commercial and critical success upon its release. The Wachowski's vision, blending high-concept philosophical ideas with the well-directed or many well-directed action sequences drawn particularly from Hong Kong-style cinema, revolutionised the visual aesthetic of action movies, from fight choreography to which actors get cast as the hero. The Matrix just revolutionised film when it came out. I gather that's how it's been remembered. What was your first experience with The Matrix? Did you go and see it at the cinema in the 90s? Was it sometime later? It was sometime later on TV, I think. But I think actually before even seeing The Matrix in one go, I think I saw a lot of fragments of it. And I suppose that those were the days even before the meme as well. Mm-hmm. But I think what was noticeable, like how influential the movie was, was there were proper parodies of The Matrix all the time. You know, that kind of weird slow motion, mm-hmm. 360 degrees camera thing. Oh, the bullet time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and... And then, but there are also, so they're the genuine parodies, but also these other, you know, unintentional parodies, other movies just mimicking the kind of extremely self-indulgent slow motion thing. It feels like there's so many influences packed into it. And it just, like you say, and drawing attention to the parodies, I think it also direct commentary, let's say, on The Matrix. So kind of making fun or playing with some of the ideas that they introduced to a mainstream audience. But then also a whole smattering of films that just directly lifted the aesthetic. So everything from like the tone to the costumes to this edginess that all seemed to be there. 
But we've also identified a series of films that we think all seem to have a very similar office vibe. Do you want to talk a bit about that, Katie? Yeah. So when we first meet Neo, he's like your typical Gen Xer with a bad case of ennui. He's got a nine to five job in a cubicle. He clearly is getting no personal fulfillment from this. And there's an article in Open Culture that calls The Matrix a dystopian office movie, and it places it under the header right alongside Fight Club, American Beauty, Office Space, and Being John Malkovich All, which came out in the same year, which I I didn't remember that they all came out together. So that's been sort of interesting to revisit. So these movies were made during a period of stability and prosperity in America, and they feature main characters who are looking for something to radically shake up their lives. And American Beauty reveals an ugliness under that stability, but The Matrix goes, I think, further than the rest of them by saying that ugliness is actually evil. It's enslavement. And this is really different from The Terminator, which we did earlier this season, And there, we talked about The Terminator as a Cold War anxiety film playing to the real human threat of nuclear annihilation. In these late 90s movies, the true anxiety is boredom. It's just bored guys, basically. So I found it really interesting to rewatch it from the context of 2022, where the idea of hating on a stable job that comes with a 401k and health insurance feels... (laughs) really strange i don't know how you felt revisiting the movie now yeah it was yeah yeah i was wondering whether those were the one of the nicest periods of history in a way because mm-hmm. it's you know after the cold war before 9-11 before the financial crash in 2006 and 2008 so yeah it, 2001 was the dot-com bubble burst yeah so it was like right before that first but um, perhaps if we take it maybe consider it from a British context, but obviously the film is American, but we had certain reflections on that kind of thing in the UK as well. If you think about, you know, Blur, mm. Blur's music, the end of the century stuff, also had talked a lot about the, the issues of urban life and so on. And if we think about art, he also had the YBA movement. So if you think about, say, Damien Hirst and the big dead shark and all the kind of dead animals sort of thing, you can see this kind of matrix, you know, 1999, literally the last year of a millennium, basically doing some kind of what we might call sort of a vanitas project, thinking a bit about the end of time, Hmm. an end of a millennium, literally. I do wonder whether it's not just an economic thing, but also a broader sensibility of where we are or where they were in broader cultural history. There's an interesting thing that comes up with, well, why have the machines chosen the late 90s to simulate for everyone? They're like, oh, this is such a prosperous time. So there's like an awareness in the film. Mm. does feel kind of like a unique moment, at least in the Matrix history, and maybe it feels like that to us now. It's such a fascinating time capsule of that particular sensibility. And this was, for some reason, I keep thinking Fight Club is earlier than 1999. It always amazes me that those two films came out in this year. Yeah, together. And they're such similar, just rebellion angst against a very, very similar setup, apart from in Fight Club. You should not sympathize with Edward Norton because he's awful. Uh, But Neo is almost an everyman character. And I don't know, maybe it's just me. I found it quite easy to identify with him on my rewatch. I don't know. My impression like of seeing Neo is always that kind of blank face. Mm-hmm. It's always a very boring, empty character. It's not very... Oh, there's so much... Suppose there's so much emotional baggage going in. Literally having his life changed like three times in an hour or so. But there is not too much emotion, it feels. There's always this almost childlike purity to it, Hmm. at least how I perceive it. So maybe that's intentional to say, yeah, everyone can identify with the Neo character. Should we talk about philosophy in the Matrix? Yeah, let's talk about philosophy in the Matrix. (laughs) It's a very big topic. Yeah. But I think we've got the right person to talk to about some of these ideas. We've picked up a number of things that we can go into, but I'm curious, when we say Matrix and philosophy, what do you think of first? Well, the cliche you want to go to is Descartes, because, you know, there's obviously the whole wealth of literature, philosophical literature on metaphysics and philosophy of mind that comes out of both following and reacting to Descartes' so-called substance dualism, which teaches that there are two types of substances in the world, namely the immaterial mind and material things, which include bodies or anything that's not mind. So one kind of picture that's often given in 
the kind of literature I mentioned is the idea of brain in a vat. So how do we know that what we're sensing in all this is really real? Or just something that we're receiving through some kind of manipulation system. And The Matrix is basically a long, dramatised version of this type of thinking. And I suppose Descartes quite known for his uh, methodological doubt, which is in some sense touched in this movie. So in my own teaching, when I teach Descartes, I used to use The Matrix a fair bit, because I think there's something quite interesting about what Katie talked about as the actual evil element of The Matrix. So Descartes' most famous book is called The Meditations on First Philosophy, in which he opens up by saying, well, yeah, I've been told a lot of things in life that I later found out that's not true. So how do I know what is truth? So he starts by saying that, well, I need to start again. I want to start afresh by sure foundations. So he wants to develop a way in which he could get at truth and certainty. And so he begins by doubting everything he's been told, and not just told, but everything he perceives as well. So he kind of goes, well, how do I know that I'm hearing things at the moment? Well, I don't know that. Uh, You know, this could be Joe speaking to me, but it could be Katie recording this and then playing it through an app to pretend to be Joe. So how do I know that? This doubting becomes a key way for Descartes to try to get at truth, which he understands as something that is undoubtable. So for Descartes, what he says is that we can doubt our senses, our perception of things, So in some sense, all the data we receive from our bodies, bodily senses, we can doubt. But the only thing that we can't doubt is that there is this mental process that we call doubting. Hmm. So this is how he arrives at the mind and body distinction, if you will. The mind, characterized by cognitive thinking, is undoubtable because it's simply there as we doubt things, whereas everything is doubtable. Everything else that is material is doubtable. Mm -hmm. So there we have undoubtable versus doubtable. Therefore, mind and body are distinct in that sense. Okay, that's the basic uh, philosophical moves he makes in the meditations. But there's one interesting question he poses in his first meditation. That is, well, what if everything I feel, I smell, I see and all that is given to me by what he calls a malicious demon? Yeah. So instead of a machine, instead of a brain in a vat, which some in more recent philosophy talked about, he says, well, yeah, there could be this kind of evil demon that's somehow possessed me and been giving me all these false information, pretending to be Joe, or even pretending to be Katie, pretending to be Joe, and so on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, there is this kind of element that is not just a what we might call an epistemological issue going on here, but it's a link to a moral issue. So it's not just about having good knowledge or bad knowledge. But what well, is actually about having good knowledge or bad knowledge, but the key word is good, yeah, mm-hmm. because if it were true that there's something that's deceiving us, that would be an evil thing. And for Descartes, that would be something, you know, supernatural in a sense that is able to do it, namely the malicious demon. And I've, I've found when I'm teaching Descartes, especially teaching the malicious demon stuff, the Matrix is actually something quite a helpful imagery because the matrix is literally an entity that's kind of evil in a way and literally feeds the sense data into you so that's been on my mind every time i think about the matrix that's just made me think so much of the moral world that morpheus presents in the matrix right so talking about descartes like anything obscuring truth is a moral bad morpheus is very much like i said i give you the truth you might not like it but the truth is the ultimate kind of ideal And they're very firm lines drawn around good and evil in the Matrix film. Yeah, absolutely. That was what what I meant exactly in terms of when the Matrix is actually evil and not just ugly. Mm -hmm. But yeah, as I rewatched it this time, there are a few lines that struck me quite a bit. So Morpheus actually repeatedly says to Neo that he's trying to free his mind. I don't think it's an innocent use of language. and there are other bits when they say, well, yeah, when, when Neo asks Morpheus, do people die in real life when they die in the Matrix? And Morpheus goes, yeah, because no body can live without a mind, or if you use Descartes in language with a soul. Mm. So there's, there's this kind of interesting mind and body thing going on there. But I think the most striking one is actually the dojo scene. And there's Morpheus actually had this line, when the first time when Morpheus beats Neo, he goes, how did I beat you? Neo says, you're too fast. And Morpheus replies, do you think my being faster, stronger has anything to do with my muscles in this place? So is there is this kind of clear thing is like is about mind power instead of physicality. 
it's almost like if you think about another thing that was referred to a few times was the spoon thing. There is no spoon mm. because it's really about what you think and not about physical objects themselves. So I've said a fair few things about mind and body and so on, but I'm not sure the movie has a clear worked out metaphysical system or whatever you call it that they want to present. Mm -hmm. Because after all, what they're saying is, yes, in the world of the Matrix, the bad world, the evil world, if you will, it is the mind that counts, not the muscles, the body. But that might not be the right way to live or to understand how things ought to be. So we can observe the mind-body dualism in ways, but I'm not sure that's something that the filmmakers would clearly want to affirm, at least not based on the way I've highlighted things so far. Yeah, so I was picking up on the fact as I was watching it that there are a lot of things that in The Matrix, concepts that exist already for us, The Matrix makes literal so it, it takes metaphor and makes it just super literal. So we have the metaphor of being a cog in the machine. That's just a phrase, an expression that exists. You know, I'm just a cog in the machine. And the Matrix is like, okay, let's make that literal. Each human being, they're like in a pod, plugged in. They are a literal cog in the machine. Mm -hmm. And we have the concept of to be bugged. You know, the FBI were bugging me. And what that means usually is that some sort of listening device has been put somewhere in your vicinity to listen into you. And in the Matrix, there is an electronic thing that becomes a physical insect and goes inside Neo. So he is literally bugged. And we also have a lot of metaphor around rebirth. The most dominant one for me is in John 3 from the New Testament when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he's explaining that you need to be born again and Nicodemus is thinking in a literal sort of way and he's like what do you think a grown person can enter back into the mother's womb and Jesus is like no 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 you should be metaphorically born again that symbolizes your transition from one state of being to another state of being and the matrix makes that super literal so when Neo takes the red pill and he decides to be aware of the matrix he is very literally born again his body Body is in this fluid, like amniotic fluid. He's got an umbilical cord attached to him. He's hairless. His eyes aren't functioning right because he's never used them before. He's sort of scrambling and gasping for air. It's a really literal rebirth. And even the pod that they're all in is shaped like an egg. And then there's the sort of last bit where this was really strong to me was there's a bit where Morpheus says, I'm trying to free your mind but I can only show you the door. You need to walk through it. And I thought Morpheus was speaking allegorically, very John the Baptist-y. But then they get to the Oracle's house and Morpheus is like, I told you, I can only show you the door. You need to walk through it. As he tells Neo, he has to go in by himself. So even there, <laughs> there's a real literalism being applied. But even in all those places, we can see the Matrix creating new metaphor. Mm. So it takes something that's metaphorical and visualizes it in a really literal way and creates a new metaphor again. So there have been a lot of theorists that have read the birth scene as being representative of the trans experience, being born again into your chosen gender or your gender identity rather than the gender you were assigned at birth. All of that just made me think when King Ho was talking about how there's not necessarily a developed metaphysical system between body and mind it's like they've got that idea and they're literalizing so you have your mind exists within the matrix and your body is elsewhere and there's a real distinction between the two and they're linked somehow but then that poses other interesting questions but they're not so interested in trying to develop a really clear metaphysical system because i also think there's lots of these things that seem to break down taking this film as a single film rather than thinking about what they've done later yeah the bug scene was what i was thinking like because i was like if they basically neo this is the sort of pre-enlightened neo was within the system and the, and the body's not real yeah, he's plugged in <laughs> why do they need to, to bug him literally or physically yeah yeah <laughs> that just seemed odd to me <laughs> my husband asked the same question about the earpieces that Agent Smith and the other agents have to wear. So they are like a visual representation of the AI itself. And they come into the Matrix and interact with the other characters. And they wear these earpieces that remind us of like Secret Service people. And if you take the earpiece out, so there's a scene where Agent Smith is questioning Morpheus and he takes the earpiece out and he misses stuff that's going on. And my husband was like, if they are the AI, why do they need 
earpieces to communicate with each other. That was the weird scene, though, that when Agent Smith takes it off, because that gets picked up in the later movies, because the other agents came back in and said he didn't know what he was doing. Mm. It was literally going offline, if you will. Mm. And that was one of the things, I guess, wasn't really explained in this movie. Right. Not that they were particularly well explained in the, in the subsequent ones, but still. It's a good moment, though. It is. I mean, Hugo Weaving, we didn't mention him in the introduction, but Hugo Weaving as Agent Smith is fantastic. I love watching him on screen so much he's just brilliant as a force of evil <laughs> and tipped over into not he's not even just fulfilling his programming he also viscerally hates humankind so you want to see him beat so i think basically what we're getting at here <laughs> is that in a sense the matrix actually splits mind from body in a Descartes metaphor way but makes it literal but also if you try to drill into that too much it falls apart a little bit yes yeah is that right yeah yes absolutely um mm. there's also this kind of really unsubtle <laughs> literal thing that i noticed this time when i was watching it and particularly with your theme in mind that you know this is again the actually almost neo's first scene when he was wake someone from the computer at, and someone knocks on the door and he sells this disc to this customer this dodgy customer and the guy says hallelujah you are my savior man my own personal jesus christ i was like wow this is so unsubtle yeah <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> yeah i think we should go into explaining a little bit about our theme chosen one because for katie and i we've kind of arrived before we largely started recording these but the idea is really crystallized while we've been talking with lots of people about all these films in the season, that there is a distinction between saviors and chosen one figures. And you can kind of do lots and lots of difference. There are certain things that I find particularly compelling about chosen one characters that I think maybe Katie is less keen on. But in essence, they are kind of an every person. There's something intrinsic about them that allows them to accomplish whatever mission is before them. There are a host of other kind of characters around them, so often helpers, often mentors. Perhaps there is an anti-chosen figure who they are mirroring in some way. There's often something like prophecy or fate or something like that going on. And for me, the really one I always like to see is the self-doubt. I love to see a chosen figure self-doubting. And lots of those elements are often absent in a saviour narrative, or at least... Not prophecy, though. Prophecy is very much in saviour narratives as well mm. as chosen one narratives. We start the film with this line that a guy says Neo is a Jesus figure. He is a personal Christ, like he really belabors the point. And Neo ends the film very much like a a Superman of sorts. Like he is limitless power. He's resurrected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's yeah. come back from the dead. The rules no longer apply to him. But I think for a lot of the film, I still think of him as a chosen one figure. Now, when we asked, we asked you to talk about The Matrix and Chosen One, what did you think we were trying to get at? Was Neo self-evidently the obvious chosen one? And how do you think about that theme and the film? Yeah, um, I think it's quite clearly he's the one. But I think you can say, yeah, the chosen one does not need to be a saviour. But clearly in this movie, the chosen one is a saviour. He is, yeah. But also I think one thing to highlight is also the chosen one's also the one who is saved. So it's not just the one who saves others, but most of the movie is actually about Neo being saved in the first place. And that seems to me what's actually the most interesting about this movie, at least the first one. You know, the, the Jesus thing is obviously a clear point of reference, and clearly a lot of people would see that in the movie. But I think as I watch it, and with some of the philosophy stuff in mind, I thought... Plato would be a more interesting figure to, to think about, particularly because of the question or the issue of simulation. I should also note on that note, literally just before the customer confesses that Neo is Christ or Neo is, is his saviour. Mm -hmm. And Neo actually, I don't know if you noticed, picks up a book by Baudrillard, The Simulacra and Simulations. So again, a very on the nose mm -hmm. <laughs> reference to the themes of, mm -hmm. of simulation. One of the fascinating things, I think, and that's picked up more developed on, I think, in the in the later movies, but is already here, is a certain sense of descending and ascending sort of thing. So you literally get the sense in which humanity's been brought into the caves, into the darkness of things um, in the real world. But yet, nonetheless, there is this further, more evil, more ugly place 
that is the matrix that is even, if you will, a lesser reality or less perfect place, a less good place than the caves. Mm. I'm just going to interject quickly. Can you give a brief summary of Plato's allegory of the cave? Yes. Yeah. So Plato's allegory of the cave comes in his um, famous book, The Republic, which I might note begins with Socrates saying that I went down to the harbour or something like that. But going down, descending, I think it's catapon or something like that, is the Greek phrase, Yeah, is the first word of the whole book. And as with Plato, normally the first few words are indicative of a certain motif that recurs throughout the whole dialogue. Mm. So the whole book of the Republic, in some sense, is about descending and ascending. And the book ends, and this may be something we find in The Matrix as well, that book 10 of The Republic ends with the myth of Ur, where someone dies and descends into the realm of the dead and comes back, ascends back to the world of the living, and so on. But in a cave, what we have is a picture of a world, that is the cave, where people are imprisoned, they're chained down, and what they can see is just a wall. And on the wall are just these shadows of shapes and patterns. And that's everything these imprisoned people can see. And they take those shadow, shadowy figures as reality itself. Whereas what is going on in the cave is really, there's a fire behind these prisoners and these shapes and cut out things are just waved around before the fire to project onto the wall, which has the shadows which these folks take as reality. Now, someone gets, if you will, chosen among these prisoners and gets liberated out of the cave. And the standard story, the short form of the story goes, oh, the person leaves the caves, ascends out of the cave and sees the sun, which is Plato's account of the good. But if we look at the text a bit more, Plato actually says that the chosen one, if you will, the liberated one, the saved one, does not actually see the sun directly because they're not used to the light, like Neo wasn't used to light when he got liberated out of it. The chosen one needs to slowly see, you know, how the light gets reflected onto objects and then onto river streams and so on. So he's slowly work their eyes up to see the sun, to see the truth, to see the good, if you will. And one thing Plato highlights is that that process is a painful one. Seeing light, seeing truth is not as easy as people, it's not just, you know, I leave the cave and ho ho, I'm all happy and so on. It's actually a painful experience. And that kind of pain, I thought, that struggle, the struggle of seeing reality was something that was captured in, you know, in the crew and also in Neo's life, but actually I think more so in the crew, on how, you know, actually this whole reality actually is difficult. Truth is might not be as nice. It's Cypher the most Yes, who is like, I just rather I didn't know the truth. I want to go back to the comfort of the cave. And there is that element that Plato also talks about. There's all these Cypher figures because what happens in the cave story is the chosen one after seeing the good, returns descends back down into cave like Socrates does at the beginning of the the dialogue to try to liberate the others and spread the good news if you will and people know it's like people don't want to be saved and they end up as Plato says if they were able to lay hands on the chosen one they would kill them and in some sense this is the cipher character in a real like I don't want to be saved it's pretty nice in the cave it's pretty nice in the matrix and obviously you could say that you know the platonic character there of the chosen one is Socrates, who tries to enlighten the people of Athens, but gets executed. And also the Christian tradition also obviously has a similar character in Jesus Christ, who tries to bring light to the world, but the world did not want to recognize the light and ultimately kills him. I just want to ask a follow-up question. So in the Republic, he gives some sorts of tips for how you might discourse with people in the cave to avoid having this backlash. So he talks about how you need to encourage people to think about what they know already and then kind of ask questions. But basically this this idea of wisdom starts with owning up to ignorance, right? So instead of just going back into the cave and telling all the cave dwellers, hey, you're all in a cave. You don't have knowledge of the sun. Come outside, see the sun. That instead you should start with a gentle declaration of ignorance and intellectual modesty. And I think that we get that with Morpheus when he's like first talking to Neo. We get a lot of sort of Socratic method application because Morpheus asks Neo what is real how do we define real and so he's sort of encouraging Neo to come with him 
I mean, he also acknowledges that he has to speed up this process faster than he would normally because Agent Smith has caught on to the fact that something is afoot. I think in those scenes when Morpheus is having that kind of discourse using the Socratic method, there's also sort of by extension, the discourse is being had with the audience as well, encouraging the audience to question the very foundation of what we think we know by casting doubt on our own knowledge. I think what the Socratic Morpheus was trying to do is to get this is where it comes to be quite, I find interesting. So is to have Neo choose to be free. But ultimately, Neo is not just a chosen one, but is the one who chooses as well. Mm-hmm. And that's quite interesting to me. Mm. And by the way, this is where the Christology thing comes in quite <laughs> uh, interesting. Yeah, go ahead. When we think about the figure of Neo, I think one question is, who chooses Neo? And one way in which the movie, at least the first one, does it is to say that, well, Neo is, seems to be the one who chooses. So there's kind of almost a paradoxical thing. Uh, Neo is the chosen one who is chosen to choose, if you will. And there is this, especially in the first half of the movie, Morpheus at one point asks him, do you believe in fate, Neo? Neo says, no. Morpheus asks, why not? Neo says, because I don't like the idea that I am not in control of my life. But this is kind of a weird one, isn't it? So how can a chosen one not be a, an issue of fate? And this was repeated when Neo goes to see the Oracle, when Oracle just does not really give Neo a clear message or answer, but then ends by telling him, you'll remember that you don't believe any of this fate crap. You're in control of your own life, remember? They don't tell Neo that he is the one. Neo needs to decide that he is the one. And that was why, you know, when he enters the god mode towards the end of the movie, Morpheus goes out, he's starting to believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that I thought is quite an interesting dynamic going on. Mm. Because I think maybe that there's no clear-cut grand metaphysical system worked out in the movie, but I think they're aware that you can't have the fate of the chosen one in such a, a very simplistic way. They needed something with a bit more tension in it to make it work. I think it actually pairs really nicely with Jesus in The Last Temptation of Christ. So that's included in this season. We talk about that being really the only Jesus film that puts Jesus as a chosen one rather than a classic savior. And a big part of that is because he spends so much of the film coming to terms with his own identity and his own responsibility, what he's meant to be doing, and understanding himself as both fully God and fully man. I think we see a lot in Neo also. It's not a straightforward classic savior thing that we get in most Jesus movies where Jesus is just, he's just godlike the whole time. Mm -hmm. He never really struggles. You get a momentary bit of struggle if the movie depicts the Garden of Gethsemane, which is right before his arrest. But otherwise, there's not a lot of tension. There isn't that moment of there's potential doubt and then actually I'm choosing to go forward with it. And we get a lot of that in The Last Temptation. Jesus ultimately in that movie has to make a choice to get back on the cross. Metaphorically, we don't think he was ever actually off the cross. Well, let's talk Christology then. I want to backtrack one thing and then I'll go into Christology. There was actually even this remarkable line that Morpheus just mentioned in passing just to highlight the tension that there is about the fate question. Morpheus says, fate, it seems, is not without a sense of irony, which I kind of, yeah, I think captures the thing pretty well. But yes, on, on the issue of Christ thing, or let's just go, let's call it Christology, in the Christian tradition, particularly the more recent Christian tradition, so broadly speaking, post-Reformation, modern Christian theology, the question of election is obviously an interesting one. But it's interesting that, and this is what was partly in, on my mind earlier, when I said that the chosen one isn't always, as you said, the saviour, but the saved. And that's pretty often how the elect or the election is understood in the Christian tradition. Could you just explain a little bit the idea of the election? Yes, so it's basically God's chosen people, in some sense, is the elect. And so the bits in the Bible, I think Ephesians is one of those places that kind of like, from all eternity, God has chosen you, the reader, the Christian, or the believer, whatever, that kind of thing. And so the chosen one in that case, and these cases are often associated with those who are saved, the Christians who are saved by Jesus. When it comes to the 20th century, one of, if not the most important Christian theologian of the 20th century, the Swiss Reformed theologian Karl Barth, has this kind of reinterpretation of the doctrine or the notion of election. 
So Bart is known for someone who wants to begin or structure all his theology with Christology. So the person and being that is Jesus Christ structures all of his ways of understanding or doctrine or even or reality, including the doctrine of election. So what he would argue is that what happens in the doctrine of election is the first and foremost who is or who was elected is not God's people, is not the Christian believer, but rather Jesus Christ himself. So what we have there for Bart is a kind of weird unity of the subject and object of election. God is the one who elects, but God is also the one, in some sense, who is elected. Although Bart's more precise formula is Jesus Christ is the electing God and the elected human. But because humanity and divinity come together in the person of Jesus Christ, you can have the electing and the elected in one go. And we have this similar structure, if you will, with Neo, who is the elected one, but also has to elect himself to be the elected one. So Neo is both the subject and object of election or of choice in The Matrix. And this is where I kind of think the line when Morpheus says towards the end, he is starting to believe, quite important. Because what what Neo needed the whole time was to have faith, in some sense. And this runs along with also Bart's interpretation of what St. Paul calls the Pistus Christu, the faith of Christ or faith in Christ. Now, Bart would just go, the Christian faith is not about faith in Jesus Christ, but more primarily about faith of Jesus Christ. So when Neo starts to believe, what we have is actually the faithfulness or the faith of Neo that becomes the saving factor of the world. And so, yeah, I thought there was something interesting here. I'm fairly sure the filmmakers didn't have this in mind when when they were writing it, but it is fascinating to think about how there was such a strong, deliberate way of framing Neo's breakthrough towards the end. In some sense, we might say that he actually becomes the one as opposed to he was always the one. Just on a side note, a- Abraham Jungle did also has this kind of weird interpretation of Karl Barth as God's being is in God's becoming. And so you have this parallel there as well. Mm. I really like that too, because it really drills down to why Neo feels like sort of what we've set up as chosen one tropes until that moment when he becomes a dying rising savior, and then it becomes really classic savior stuff. And that you're sort of articulating that there's almost like a switch that happens only in finding that belief in himself that he becomes the savior figure. And it's the choosing to go back into the Matrix. Yeah. He has gone back into the world and Descend. descended yeah. again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so just on that note, Katie, we often talk about costuming choices in film. And I know that you had something you wanted to pick up about that particular scene when they re-enter the Matrix to rescue Morpheus. Yeah. So in that scene, when Neo re-enters the Matrix, he's doing that because Morpheus has been taken by Agent Smith and he wants to rescue Morpheus at great risk to his own personal safety. And so he and Trinity re-enter the Matrix together to prepare themselves for going into the Matrix. They put on their sort of battle costume. So both of them are in their long leather duster jackets and they're all dressed in black and leather and they've got their black sunglasses on, you know, the look that became really famous from this movie. And they go into this office building and they've got all their guns. And I was reminded instantly of the Terminator. Now in the Terminator, it's the Terminator who's all in black and with the sunglasses and he's got all of his big guns. And he comes in one of the first scenes where he's hunting Sarah Connor and it's in a bar and the music plays and we get the like donut donut music. I'm going to insert it here because I cannot mimic the music. <laughs> Come with me if you want to live. Yeah, so in that scene in The Matrix, when Neo enters back in, they play really similar music. Keys, boost change. Holy shit! 
it's got that same beat, that same rhythm of dun it, dun it. And the look is evocative of the Terminator look. And then that soundtrack ends up being peppered with the sound of rapid gunfire, just like it is in the Terminator. So in that film, we have a machine coming to kill the human. And now we have a sort of reversal of that with two humans coming to kill the machines. I found that really interesting. So at first, I wasn't quite sure what to make of these parallels, and I talked to Joe about them in a sort of pre-recording chat that we often have. And Joe mentioned that he can see like a thematic parallel going on as well, where both the Terminator and Neo are disruptors. In the Terminator, the Terminator is disrupting our time, Sarah Connor's time. He's coming from out of time and causing havoc. And in The Matrix, Neo is disrupting The Matrix. He is coming from outside of that environment and disrupting that environment. So can you, Joe, talk a little bit more about what you saw happening in this parallel that I mentioned, and also how you think it might relate to Jesus, who's also a disruptor? What's interesting in that moment is from the perspective of the matrix like the matrix as a world neo is the villain in some ways so we have a almost a parallel between the terminator storming the police station in the terminator he's the bad guy he's come to disrupt the world order and neo is doing very much the same thing he's also there to get someone very specific he's obviously trying to rescue them but there's this mayhem and disruption that is caused amongst people who are just like on duty, if you like. And then we get this real sense of a complete reversal where suddenly we're cheering for more or less the same robotic figure that the Terminator embodies as a disruptor coming into the system that now we're on the side of those who wish to change things up. Whereas in the Terminator, that's not the case at all. The Matrix as a film has already destabilized everything we're comfortable with. So we're in a position where the villain in that world can be someone we back. So by adopting the more or less this ominous presence and characterization from the Terminator, they're doing something very, very clever in their flipping on its head. Well, what, what does it mean to be a hero in this world where the world itself is an embodiment of evil, a manifestation of evil? And so you could make a point that this also further maps onto this Christology because often in Christian theology you have a fallen world that needs repair and the way to fix things, to fix people, is to have a disruptor figure come into the world that is almost like an antagonist to it. So you get this in the figure of Jesus. Maybe if we read him more like more like Neo in some senses, like guns blazing, leather clad, or the Terminator that he's, he'll be back, then who knows? <laughs> yeah. So much has been written on the Matrix and all its intellectual illusions, and we could almost just rapid fire bash through some. Because even from just biblical stuff, we've got the ship is Nebuchadnezzar, named after the dreaming Babylonian king. He's exiled into the wilderness for a bit when... He's a man beast. There's like a thing going on there. The human city is Zion that we never see in this film. We only hear about it. We maybe want to circle back around to that and what's going on there. We already mentioned earlier the Baudrillard book Simulacra and Simulation, where the phrase desert of the real comes from. And a lot of these ideas of copies of copies also seem to come from. But there's so much of this stuff. There's also Morpheus's name. Morpheus is God of Dreams. Yeah, the Sandman. <laughs> yeah, he's the Sandman. Again, the first Matrix being a paradise, like that's biblical illusions all out the wazoo's. Yeah, so I wanted to ask about that, actually. So at one point, Agent Smith reveals that there was an earlier version of the Matrix that had failed. And in that earlier version of the Matrix, they had built a perfect world. And he says, essentially, that the people couldn't tolerate it. They resisted this perfect world. And that is because human nature ultimately cannot tolerate perfection. And this I found really, really interesting and relates, I think, to, and I think this is where you were going with it, Joe, to the fall from the Garden of Eden and this Christian theological concept that when Adam and Eve 
eat from the tree, they then become fallen and all of humanity since then is fallen and cannot live in a state of perfection. They always seem to need to be in conflict with something, whether it's the oppressive nature of the suburbs or a stable office job (laughs) being oppressive and being in conflict with that or like literal war. But I just found this notion that a perfect world just was doomed to failure really interesting. Because it's coming from Agent Smith and he's like the bad guy, there's probably also the sense that he's not necessarily a reliable translator Mm -hmm. of what it is to be human. And so you could probably exit that movie and still think a perfect world would succeed. They just got it wrong, you know? Mm. But maybe he has some truth to what he's saying and maybe dismissing it because he's a bad character is the wrong way to go. Well, I think for me, the, the question is also like, what does it mean to fail mm. in The Matrix? You know, Yeah. <laughs> like what, people become unhappy, get too happy. Why is that failure? Does it matter for the human battery farm to work? Maybe I guess when they said no one would accept the program, I mean, they just saw through it. Maybe that was the issue. Yeah, I don't know what that's supposed to mean. No one would accept the program. Yeah, maybe it's that there's an existential feeling of it being incorrect that just became too powerful. Mm, Yeah, too good to be true. Yeah. So they just (laughs) free their minds quickly. Okay, if you were offered red pill or blue pill, what would you take? Probably the blue pill. Not at least because of certain cultural connotations these days, but... (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Get rid of the connotations of taking the red pill. So maybe do you remain in the matrix or do you embrace the real? Yeah. There is also the question of, is there like some kind of infinite regress sort of thing? So, well, actually, after you take the red pill, you've got out of it. And then you find out in Matrix 2 and 3 that there is actually some bigger thing going on as well. And so what is the real? So, yeah, I I, part of me just going to say, yeah, keep it simple. To be fair, like, you can just go like, well, actually, is the whole Zion, the crew life and all that, actually, is that real as well? It seems to me that was actually put into question later on. And I should just say what I do like the most out of this kind of different worlds in which the Matrix series is done. It was actually the one in the in the recent reboot where Keanu Reeves plays the game designer of Matrix. So there's kind of meta, meta, meta level going on. Mm. And that I found to be the most uh, charming <laughs> world out of all the ones because there is this kind of awareness of the unreality of it. But it's a quite a complicated one, which I find amusing and there's also what was interesting in that world if i may elaborate a bit more is that there is a sense of projection whereas you don't really have that in the matrix computer world in the first one or in the crew life but in the one in matrix 4 when keanu reeves is thinking about the game world so the game he designs called the matrix and he kind of fulfills his dreams in that world and there's something interesting about that kind of projection and aspirations um, that i think wasn't clearly articulated in the first movie or the first three, but it's definitely got a what I would see as a richer dimension to how we understand the questions of reality. When I was younger, if someone had offered me, like, do you want to go on an adventure out of this cave that we're living in? Because surprise, we're in a cave. I would have taken that 100%. And I think if somebody offered it to me now... I'd probably stay in the cave. So I... Yeah, the 1990s were a pretty good time as well, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh. It was. (laughs) But I completely understand the line that Morpheus says when he explains to Neo that they usually don't take people as old as he is. Mm. And that really resonated with me because I think, yeah, I can see how... Like, it was definitely in my character to jump into the unknown when I was younger. And now the thought of that makes me uneasy. King Ho, it's been so great having you with us today. But before we let you go, we'd love for you to answer a question. It's the question that drives us. It's the question that brought you here. You know the question. The question is, can you pitch us a pairing? So two things, and one of which is not vegetarian friendly. I was thinking food. But the two main foods that appear in the movie would be that kind of weird, horrible looking, quasi oatmeal looking thing that they have in the in the ship. So I'll say that first. <laughs> and then there's also the stake that Cypher has when he betrays them. Oh, yeah. And it's quite interesting that the stake is so vividly described, juicy and all that kind of stuff. He really enjoys it. You can tell it. Mm-hmm. And then you have this kind of the other thing, whatever that bowl of stuff you get in real life, that seems horrible. 
but there's so many contrary descriptions and explanations of it that you're left, it's just indeterminate. And so I would say pair with something of that nondescript stuff, but also with steak, because I think, you know, just thinking about it, like, what does it mean to eat this bit of meat in front of us? I don't like the fetishization of embodiment and so on, but there is something about that embodied, practiced experience that brings into question, am I really eating the steak and so on? What What is steak? Isn't it weird that we literally shove food down our throats? Like, eating is a weird thing, if you think about it. So this is the kind of ongoing stuff I have when you, when you leave the cinema and you return back into real life. You start asking all these questions. And I think part of eating the weird liquidy stuff, whatever it was, or a steak after seeing The Matrix or while you're watching The Matrix can actually help you think a bit more about what is the real and who we are. And isn't it just weird that we live in this world? I love that answer. Like, really be Descartes contemplate your very existence while you're experiencing a sensation. Yeah. But it's been really good mm -hmm. to talk it through and to learn. So thank you so much for being here, King How We enjoyed it. Yeah, not fun. No, thank you. Had a great time. It's probably worth stating that The Matrix is an incredibly popular film for academics and theorists and thinkers of all kinds. There are many, many published works on The Matrix and. So you get The Matrix and philosophy, The Matrix and Christianity, The Matrix and Buddhism, Gnosticism, gender inversion, diversity and casting, the trans experience, and more. There's so much that we could have discussed in this episode, and we were never going to get to it all. So in addition to any articles and books that we've mentioned in this this chat, we will be providing a lot of reading suggestions, some YouTube links, and things of that nature on our website for anybody who wants to delve further into The Matrix and its many, many resonances. That's our show today. Gods and Movie Makers is researched and produced by us, Joe Scales and Katie Turner, and supported by listeners like you. Our music is by Star of the Kid. As always, you can follow us at GodMovPod on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, head on over to our website, godsmoviemakers.com, where you can donate to us or subscribe for additional content. Thanks for listening.